join with me in prayer. I know we just prayed, all right? Um, but I'm going to ask you to join with me now in prayer. We need to seek the face of God. That's what we need to do. And nothing should be done out of ritual or out of formalism or traditionalism, but we need to seek the face of God. Let's ask God to prepare our hearts to receive of His Word. If our hearts are not prepared, we're not going to receive anything from His Word. So let's go to the Lord and ask the Lord. Father, we come before you, Lord, on this the Lord's Day. And Father, we ask, Lord God, Lord, truly that you would prepare our hearts for the Word. I know it's Mother's Day. I know that there's a lot of things going on in people's minds and thinking about what they're going to be doing after church, but this is the time that you have ordained. Father, Lord, I beg you, I beseech you, don't allow our minds to be tuned out from worshiping you with the Word of God. Instead, Father, turn the hearts of your people toward you. That there would be a hunger, there would be a passion, Lord God, for the Word. That, Father, Lord God, that we are so desperate and we are so needy as a people, Lord God, spiritually, that, Father, we cannot afford even five minutes to be turned away from the Word of God. So, Father, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would capture hearts today. That, Lord, that the Word would go forth in authority, the Word would go forth in power, and that the Word would go forth in might. I think of the words of the psalmist, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me and, and lead me in a path everlasting. And that is what we pray right now, Lord. Search us and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord. Bring us to that place of repentance and lead us in the path everlasting, Lord. So, Father, we offer up the word to you, Father, for you to take, for you to convict, you to exhort, and you to admonish, Lord. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Bless God. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18. Now that should ring a bell with you, right? Because a few weeks ago I preached from First Kings chapter 18, and we preached about the great revival on Mount Carmel with Elijah the prophet, and we're going back. We're going back to that same story. It's not a rerun, it's part two of a message here. And several weeks ago, I preached from that in a sermon, a sermon entitled Revival, where we looked at the four elements of revival found in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you recall, the four elements of revival will restore the proper worship, the right heart of worship, a righteous request in worship, and a righteous response to worship. And all of that led 
to a return to God, to revival. And today we're going to look at part two of that. Part two is persistence or persevering in prayer. And they both go hand in hand, right? Uh, Elijah goes up there, does a great move of God on Mount Carmel, right? Shows that the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah were false, right? Demonstrates, he calls down fire from heaven, fire comes down, consumes the altar, does everything right, but the story doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. I shared with you that the background to this was in um, that the 12 tribes of Israel had a civil war. They split. Ten tribes went and formed the northern kingdom, and two tribes went and filled the southern kingdom. And in 1722 B.C., the northern kingdom was wiped out. It was no more. In 586 B.C., Judah and the southern kingdom was overtaken by the Babylonians. This account, as I shared with you the last time, deals with the ten tribes, the northern kingdom. Now, one of the things about the northern kingdom is they had wicked kings. They were all wicked. Judah also had wicked kings, but they actually had two ones that followed after God. But Israel itself had no good kings. And now, during this time of 1 Kings 18, they had the worst of the worst. King Ahab and his wonderful wife Jezebel. And so, what had happened to Israel at this time? Israel had fallen into pagan worship. They had integrated the worship of Baal with the worship of Jehovah. You know, so when you integrate impurity with that which is pure, what do you get? Impurity. It's the only way it can happen. And so while they still retained some formal aspects of the worship of Jehovah, they had also integrated in the worship with Baal. Baal was a god that was thought to control the rains. It was thought that he spoke in the thunder. By the way, Baal is a god which the following of Baal also involved a lot of sexual impurity, immorality, uh, idol worship, pagan worship, all these other different things. This is the state that Israel, God's chosen people, had found themselves after years of wickedness. Queen Jezebel, prior to this, prior to this encounter on Mount Carmel, had gone out because she was a fervent worshiper of Baal. She had gone out and she had killed hundreds of the Lord's prophets and priests, destroyed them. For the sole reason that they will not come into conformity with the worship. Should ring a bell to you, right? With some of the things we see in our culture today and how the culture is marginalizing. First marginalizing Christianity, but outwardly beginning to persecute Christianity. Why? Because Christianity won't toe the line of the culture. We're a threat to the culture. Well, the few remaining believers that there were in Israel at that time were also a threat to the culture. How do you deal with a threat? You eliminate it. And that's what Jezebel had done. And so the ten tribes, right, the whole premise for Elijah calling the tribes up to Mount Carmel is to show once and for all 
who the true and living God was. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago. He went up there by himself. The rest of Israel went up there to bear witness. He challenged the authority that was in place. He challenged King Ahab. And he told King Ahab, come on, get up there. We're going we're to end this controversy once and for all. And we're going we're gonna to see who is the real God who can call down fire from heaven. He stood alone, 850 to 1. How many of us would sign up for that, that assignment, right? And he goes up there, and you know the rest of the story from two weeks ago, of three weeks ago. The rest of the story. The prophets of Baal, 450 of them. Elijah says, you go first. They go first, and they start chanting, and they start crying, and they start begging their wicked God to, you know, to send down fire from heaven to prove who he was. Now remember, they thought he spoke in the thunder. But isn't it amazing that prior to this, Elijah had prayed that there would be no rain in Israel, and it hadn't rained for three years plus. So I'm sure there was no thunder also. And there they are, four hours, five hours, six hours, marching around their, wood, their altar, exhausted. And when they saw that they did not hear from Baal, the Bible tells us that they took out swords and began to cut themselves and, and to entreat the God. Look how sincere we are, drenched in blood. Could you imagine the scene? Could you imagine the scene? 450 people marching around, chanting, screaming, beating themselves, plucking themselves, blood dripping down from all other. But you know what? Baal didn't answer. Why? Because he's not there. Right? And there is Elijah, that crazy old prophet of God. And by the way, if you never studied Elijah, study him. The man was nuts. But he was a man of God. And there he is sitting there and he's taunting them. Hey, maybe your God went on vacation. Hey, maybe your God can't hear you. He even implies maybe the God is in the bathroom and he can't hear you. And he taunts them. And the more he taunts them, the more fired up they get. Until finally they're exhausting themselves physically. And Elijah with a very subtle kind of swagger says, listen, why don't you guys take a break, get a drink, there's iced tea over there, get a break, sit down, let me have at it. Let me call upon my God. And if you look at verse 30, uh, 36 of 1 Kings 18, it says, And then it came about the time of the, uh, the offering of the evening sacrifice. That Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. And he cried out, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. The glorious verse 38. And then fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And I just want to add something to that word. Not all the people who cried out, The Lord, He was God, He was God, was convinced in their heart that the Lord was indeed God. They were terrified at the display of God sending fire down from heaven. And so it was more like, yes, the Lord is God, don't kill me. Yes, the Lord is God, don't kill me. There wasn't full revival that had occurred at this moment, but God had indeed spoken. And he had spoken loudly by sending down fire from heaven and consuming everything that was placed on the altar. So today we're going to look at verses 40 through 46, the second part of this. And what we're going to be looking at today is how Elijah perseveres in prayer. The act of God had occurred, but there was more that needed to be done. God was to demonstrate that not only can he send down fire from heaven, but a land that had been dry, a land that had been parched, a land that had been barren, now God is going to demonstrate in contrast to Baal, to Baal that He is indeed Lord God of creation. Pick up with me in verse 40. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal and do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook in Kishon and, and slew them there. Elijah brings the prophets of Baal down, and he kills them. That sounds a, uh, a little bit severe. But what he was actually doing is he was actually fulfilling the law. In Deuteronomy 13, 1-5, that if there are people that prophesy among you and they prophesy falsely, that they are to be killed. God is not tolerant of false gods and false prophets. And in addition, this was justice for the hundreds of priests and prophets who remained in the faith. So don't get... Knocked off your horses there when you see, okay, well, he took them down to the brook and he slayed them because he was only doing the will of God according to the law. Look at verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat, drink, for there is the sound of the roar of the heavy shower. I want to be able to remind you again, it, it had not rained in Israel for over three years. Now, based on the demonstration of God's power, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, Elijah now tells wicked King Ahab, listen, go up and eat, because I'm hearing right now that a mighty rain is going to come, a mighty shower is going to come, a deluge is going to come. And of course, it was Israel. It was Elijah who had prayed that it would not rain in Israel to embarrass, to show that Baal was no God at all. He had stopped the rain. Baal was thought to speak in the thunder and control the rain and demonstrating, holding back that rain, they demonstrated the rather important <clears throat> impotence 
of this false god. And now Elijah prophesies, and he almost indirectly taunts King Ahab here. Hey, get ready. Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of the heavy shower. Now imagine, there was no sound of a roar. There wasn't a cloud in the sky at this moment. But knowing what God had placed upon his heart and knowing what God was going to do, Elijah was faithful in proclaiming. There's a lesson in there for us. When we know what God is going to do, are we faithful in proclaiming even though majority of the people don't want to hear it? Are we faithful in proclaiming the Word of God even though we know it's going to be rejected? Are we faithful in proclaiming the Word of God even though we know that most of the people don't want to hear it anymore? The prevalent mindset within America, the prevalent mindset within the church is tell me something good. I want to be encouraged. Tell me something that makes me feel good. I want to leave church feeling good. But many times God calls us to speak hard truth. He tells us to speak of the things like justice, like judgment, like sin. Things that should stimulate and provoke a person to consider their stead before God. Let me share something. Even if you are a believer, you should be considering what your meditations are, what your desires are, what your longings are, and how do they compare to the one true God. Here he tells them, oh my goodness, a shower is about to come. And in verse 42, even though he knows this word from God, we see the first thing that Elijah does to persevere in prayer. He humbles his heart. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went to eat and drink. So the king goes off and he eats and drinks. But Elijah went to the top of Carmel and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. I want to focus on the action of Elijah after the great victory against the false prophets. Elijah prays for rain to renew the land as a sign of God's favor and the ultimate victory against the false god. The victory was not complete at this point. And despite the great demonstration of God's power and the display of His might, there was more to be done. You know, the church was born in great power. The church was reformed in great power. There have been great demonstrations, great moments in church history. But there is more work to be done. I don't understand how people can think at a certain point, hey, I'm just going to go and get and I'm not going to do. We have to be doers for the kingdom of God. We have to be proclaimers for the kingdom of God. Elijah knew that the victory was not done. And so where does he go? He goes back to the site of the victory. He goes back on Mount Carmel. And what does he do? Oh Lord, I really whooped them here. Oh Lord, no, 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 no. What does he do? He prostrates himself before God. He humbles himself before God. And we see it that he crouched down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. The sign of humility. Psalm 25, 
Verses 8 and 9 says this, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in justice, and He teaches the humble His ways. James 4, 6 says, But He gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Elijah knew this. God opposes the proud. Here, Elijah could have started boasting of a victory, but he did not. He sought the Lord with humility, laying prostrate before the Lord. Church, the same way we need to do the same thing to come to the Lord. we got to get to a point and to a place where we humble ourselves before God, where we're willing to go prostrate before the Lord. That we would come humble and needy, not boastful, not demanding, recognizing that indeed the Lord is God. Sometimes you attend prayer meetings and the prayer meetings sound like a laundry list. God, I need you to do this and Lord, do that and I ask you for this and Lord, I ask you for that and Lord, you know, go against that that situation and Lord, and instead of coming before the Lord humble, broken, contrite, and needy, We come before the Lord and we tell the Lord, this is exactly what I want you to do. How did the Lord teach us to play? Our Father that is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pride leads a person away. Self-righteousness is an offense to God. Disregard and disrespect for God is an abomination. When we have become so familiar with God, we no longer feel the one who Jesus said can destroy the body and the soul in hell. When the thought of God no longer moves us. When we have entered a place of boastful arrogance, self-sufficiency, then we no longer know how to fear the Lord. Listen, I've heard a lot of people try to explain the fear of the Lord. And most of the times it says reverence. It means we got to come before the Lord with reverence. That is part of the answer. Part of the answer. You know what the other part is? It is a dreadful, fearful, awesome reverence. You think those people on Mount Carmel when fire came down from heaven said, Oh yeah, God is indeed God. They fell on their faces. They bowed. They knew. They probably thought, I'm a Baal worshiper. I'm probably going to be consumed. The Bible tells us, Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who would stand? Think about that. If the Lord marked every single sin and every action that you did against them, who could bring a case before the Lord and defend themselves? And I'd be the first one to say, Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who could stand? And I'd be the first one to say, not me, Lord. We cannot be like Israel. We cannot be indifferent. We cannot have a lack of passion. Listen, I submit to you. Do you think indeed Christ died for people to be impassionate and have a disrespect and a disregard and one day a week come out and give half-hearted tribute to the Lord? I don't think that's true. 
What are we going to say when we get to glory to that North Korean Christian who died languishing in a concentration camp because he would not deny Christ? What will we say to those Chinese Christians? What do we say with those Iranian Christians? I shared with you last week the story of Ibrahim, who was arrested solely for being a Christian, sent a thousand miles away from his family so his family couldn't uh, see him, harshly treated in a jail, released, escapes to Turkey. And the first thing he did when he got to Turkey is start witnessing to the Iranian exiles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when his time came to stand before the judge, he asked the church, do not pray for my acquittal, pray that God is glorified. What do we say in light of that? What do we say in light of Jim Elliot, who went into the deepest, darkest jungles of Ecuador to serve a people, and the very people he loved were the very people who killed him. What do we say to that? Do we say, oh, brother, that was good for you? Do we say to the martyrs, well, that was good 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, but times have changed. God accepts this kind of worship. Do we honestly think that that is what is required from God? We need to be on guard that we don't become like Israel, self-inflated, self-confident, in need of nothing. Wasn't that the sin of the church of Laodicea? Turn in Revelations chapter 3. Looking at verses 17 and 18. Revelations 3. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the, the church at Laodicea of one of seven church types that will be found in all of church history. And listen to the words in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Listen to the rebuke of the Lord Jesus, the self-confident, the, the, the proud church, the ones that don't regard God anymore. The rebuke of the Lord Jesus was this, you say you're rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind. Listen, church. Humility needs to return to the house of God. Dependence needs to return to the church. The fear of God needs to be restored to the church we can have great moves of god but that needs to be followed by contrite and humble hearts As psalm 51 7 so specifically says the sacrifices of god are a broken and a contrite heart so we see the first thing in verse 42 elijah does as he humbles him look at verse 43 and he is humble, and now he has the expectation. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. 
So he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go back seven times. After this great victory, after this move of God, Elijah becomes, because of the right spirit within him and his confidence in the Lord, now he begins to pray with expectation. Expectation that God is going to act. Expectation that God is going to do. And in this case, the expectation was that God would send rain upon a parched land. Now he says this in spite of the fact that it had not rained in Israel for three years. And much like the faith of Abraham that Paul writes about in Romans 4.18, in hope against hope, he believed. In order that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken so shall your descendants be. His faith was just like Abraham's faith. I'm going to make you, a great nation's going to come from you. He tells the 90-year-old man, the 99-year-old man. But Paul tells us, despite that, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Abraham believed God. And here we see Elijah does very much the same thing. He does not waver in unbelief but rather is fully assured that God will send the rain. So what does he do? He acts in that belief. And so he sends his servant. And he tells his servant, look toward the sea. What is he telling him? Check for rain. You see any storm clouds coming? And guess what? There isn't a cloud in the sky. Now, if Abraham was a man, uh, if Elijah was a man of weak faith, the story would have ended right there. And for many of us, that is the first sign of discouragement. We pray, we believe, we look, we don't see, and what happens? Discouragement comes right in. And we reason to ourselves I prayed. But nothing happened. But there are two things significant about Elijah. First, he prayed with expectation. He believed God. He did not waver in unbelief like we just read in our scripture reading. He wasn't double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. He believed God. And he believed God was going to send the rain. The final sending of the rain at the prophet of God totally discounts the work of the false god Baal. He believed God. Secondly, he prays with importunity. Old English word. He prays with faith. He prays with diligence. He prays with perseverance. He does not give on give up on that which God had confirmed in his heart. Let me ask you something. What are you praying for that God has confirmed in your heart, but you're not seeing happening today? And you went up and you looked. You said, Father, I prayed. I prayed for that very thing, but it's not here. I prayed God did not deliver. And the enemy rushes in and and begins to speak to your heart about fear, anxiety, and all these other things emotions designed to weaken your faith. But Elijah was confirmed in his heart. And we see this in six words that we find in the text. Six words that are significant here in verse 41. I'm going to tell you and we're going to look at them. 
The six words are look, there is nothing, go back. The six words. Let's take a look at them. First, Elijah says here, go up and look. Believing God is going to move and act, Elijah directs the servant of the Lord to look toward the sea because that's where the storm's clouds are going to come. That's rather significant. You see in Elijah's direction the anticipation that God is going to do the work. And he directs him in response to his praying. Elijah is praying with expectation. He was praying and he was looking with expectation. Many times our prayers are wishful thinking and they're not bathed in faith. Not asking for the right things, but on selfishness. Not bathed, not bathed in the will of God. James 4.3 says this, You ask and you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I mentioned earlier the Lord's Prayer, right? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And many times we believe we disguise God's will in order to appease our prayers. These are prayers that are soft, that are not in faith, that are all about us and have nothing to do with God. That's not how Elijah prayed. His heart was right before God. His prayer was conceived in God's righteousness, birthed in faith for the glory and the honor of the Lord. Can that be said about our prayers? Are our prayers birthed in faith? Are our prayers birthed in righteousness? Are our desires for the glory and the honor of the Lord? So first he tells him, look. And what happens? Look toward the sea. So what did the servant do? He went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he had a right heart. And he had a right request. And Elijah prayed for the glory of the Lord when he, yet when he first looked, there was nothing. Oh, how this scenario would cause many to cease and quit inquiring of the Lord. This is why praying with perseverance, praying with importunity becomes so, so, so important. Because as we keep going back to the Lord, as we keep believing the Lord for a mighty act of God that's going to take place, it demonstrates our faith and it demonstrates our desire. At first glance, discouragement rushes in and the voice in the enemy tells you your God does not care. He does not hear. He will not answer. And so we lie down defeated in our first trial. Let me tell you, I could look out and see many of you who have gone through trials, some of them rather severe, some of them life and death, some of them that I was praying with you and and, and there with you. And I could recall many times leaving the hospital going, oh my goodness, I don't know how this is going to end. And I could remember many times getting off the phone with some of you saying, oh God, please, if you don't intervene, this is not going to look good. And it tarried and it went on day after day, week after week, month after month. But you are still here because you broke through and God's people broke through in prayer. 
and you persevered. At times, the end looked terrible. At times, you, you, you saw things that were unimaginable. At times, you were broken. At times, some of you expressed to me, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know how long I can hang on. But you are here because of God's faithfulness. When you pray with importunity, you grab on to the horns of the altar and you say, Lord, I'm not going to let go. And some of you here today are facing trials right now that are intimidating, that are threatening. And you need to hang on to the horns of the altar. You need to be like Jacob who wrestled with the angel of the Lord. I'm not going to let you go, Lord, unless you bless me. You need to believe God and not quit at the first sight that there's nothing there. How many times do we remember the Lord? Listen, how many times do we remember the word of the Lord? Luke 11, 8 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. I tell you, even though he will not, he's talking about the neighbor. We looked at that passage. He talked about the neighbor that the, 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 the next door neighbor went over and said, Hey, at midnight, let me in. I got a traveler just came, a visitor just came. I need a few loaves of bread. And remember what he was met with? Go away. I'm already in bed. Me and my kids, my family, we're already asleep. Go away, go away. What did the neighbor do? Nah, man, I need bread. This guy just popped in on me. Go away. This was the Lord's response to that. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of what? Because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by your son for a fish. Will he give him a snake instead of a fish? Will he? We are to have the right heart, the right spirit, the right request. But then we are to As the Lord says, and in that tense, it's not clear in the English, but in the Greek, it's very clear. When he says, he who asks, means it's in the present imperative. What it basically means is, keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking. It's persistence that the Lord is talking about in that example. And so we are, we cannot grow discouraged the first time we pray Maybe the second time we pray. Maybe the third time we pray. We cannot grow discouraged when we don't see the results. We have been praying for years that God would do a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God among His people for His glory, and we continue to pray for that. The faith of Eliza was such that one look was not going to discourage him. And so look how he directs the servant. Verse 43, a servant says, there is nothing. And he said to him, go back seven times. Servant says, not a cloud in the sky, go back. Okay, the second time, I don't see any, go back. Seven times, go back, go back. Look for the rain. 
Look for the storm clouds. Church, we need to keep looking for the answer from God. Are we encouraged to keep going back and back looking for the answer from God? Do we pray with such persistence? Do we persevere? That we can say like Jacob when he wrestled with the angel, Lord, I'm not going to let you go lest you bless me. Brother or sister, these are not the days of the week. You realize that, right? I hope you're realizing that. These are not the days of the week. These are not the days of small faith. We are to be men and women with hearts of faith and expectation. You know, it's, it's sad to me to see how many Christians, well-meaning Christians, how many more Christians are more concerned with politics and cultural stuff of the day than they are with God. We are to be as William Carey, the great Baptist preacher and missionary to India stated this, and I love this saying. William Carey said this, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Does that define us? Do we expect great things from God? Do we attempt great things for God? Is this our testimony or has our faith devolved into practicality and pragmatism? Oh, I prayed for this. It didn't happen. I prayed for this. It didn't happen. That didn't happen. We're not going to do it. Is everything practicality? Has the faith of Jesus Christ lost the supernatural? Is the Holy Spirit only operating in worldly process and worldly procedures? But can the Holy Spirit intercede in a divine manner in your life and way and shape things? If you don't believe that, you need to repent. Because that is it. It is the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, He moves in many different ways. So be careful of the person who said the Holy Spirit only moves this way. Or the Holy Spirit only moves. He moves in many ways. He moves in distinctive ways. He moves in ways that are unique to you and I many times. That the Spirit of God would intercede in our life and drive us to Christ. Drive us to Christ. Listen, it's Christ. It's all about Christ. It's Christ alone. He doesn't really care whether you get that promotion. Maybe that sounds nuts. But I'm telling you, what God is after is your heart. What God is after is you. So that you would present yourself completely and totally to Him. That's Christianity. That's what causes people to suffer and die for the cause of the gospel. Because it's us. He wants our heart. And we got to pray that God filters out of our mind and takes the blinders off our eyes of this consumeristic, materialistic life that we live and offer ourselves, as the Bible says, living, holy sacrifices, which is our acceptable service of worship to the Lord. Perhaps some of the limitations on our prayer are the result of non-expectant faith. Non-expectant faith. We throw it out there hoping something that's going to happen rather than believing something that's going to happen. One wrought in tradition and ceremony, but not born in prayer. 
Not born in the study of God's Word. Not born in fellowship with the saints. Maybe our emptiness is the result of our ignoring God. There's a great need for repentance in the church. And I call you to repent today. If what I described is your faith, because if you, will, if you repent, you will indeed be restored. God is not the God of the grudge holder. All He wants is your heart. And all He wants you to do is bring your heart and say, Father, I've fallen short. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a man of God. Make me a woman of God. Look at verse 44. We see here, God answers. And it came about the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. Oh, he persisted. Oh, he persevered. From the moment that he went up there the first time and he looked for the cloud and he saw nothing but blue skies. And persevering at the word of the prophet, keep going back, keep going back, keep going back. Now on the seventh time, the servant of Elijah says, Oh, I see a cloud and it is the size of a man's hand. And I love this. The cloud does indeed come. And God is about to send the rain that is needed. Small at first. Small at first. But it will grow into a heavy shower, praise God. And God is about to send the rain. What the church needs now are men and women who are believing God that He is about to send the rain on a dry and on a parched church. And it's going to look differently in one church from another. But if we believe that God is going to send the rain of the Holy Spirit, that God is going to send the rain of revival, God is going to send the rain of restoration, we must hold to that. We must cling to that. We must be going up six, seven times looking for the rain and believing that God's going to see the rain even if we see nothing. What we're praying for is a deluge to follow. This rain will not be of water, but of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God would descend on us, baptizing us afresh of His Spirit, pouring out upon His people the fresh anointing, the unction of power, that God would grant Thy people to speak Thy Word with all boldness. You know something about Pentecost? You know something about Pentecost? When John the Baptist came on the scene, right? The Bible tells us that there were 400 silent years where no prophet said, thus saith the Lord. 400 years. It was in those 400 years, toward the end of them, the last 135, 140 years, that the Pharisaic system came to power. A system of laws and a system of do's and don'ts. A system of oral tradition. A system of written tradition. The, the reinterpretation of the Sabbath and all these other different things came in those 400 years of silence. 
John the Baptist comes and the first prophet of God speaks for 400 years. John the Baptist comes and he declares the way of the Lord. And following John the Baptist comes Jesus the Messiah. And Jesus does great works. And Jesus does great signs and wonders. And Jesus, but there was no revival, was there? How many Christians were at Calvary? Not many. We only know of a few women in John who were there. Where were the other twelve? They were in hiding for fear of the Jews. Where were the the 4,000, the 5,000, the 15,000, the 20,000 who he fed lunch to? Where were they? Nowhere to be seen. Many of those same people were probably in the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Where were the tens of thousands? Where were the ten lepers that he healed? Where were the blind men? Where were all the others? They were not there. But the great move of God preceded a greater move of God. And what did Jesus say? You're to return to Jerusalem and wait there until the Spirit of God comes. Think about this. 400 years, no spiritual reign in Israel. No spiritual reign. John the Baptist comes, preaches, preaches repentance, turning their hearts to repentance. Jesus comes, preaches the gospel, and is what? Summarily rejected. But Jesus came. He did great signs. He did great work. He did everything else. But then something happens. Pentecost Sunday. Gather in the room. All the people in Jerusalem for the mandatory feast. And what happens? The Spirit of God falls upon the apostles. The Spirit of God falls on them with an anointing and with an unction. And Peter, the big failure, the one who betrayed Jesus. Peter, the one who always stuck his foot in the mouth. Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he preaches the resurrection of Christ. And Peter lays out. And what happened? Rain, spiritual rain falls from heaven. And how many thousands are added that day to the church? It's been many years in this country in America where we have seen a move of God like that. And it's been many years since the gospel has gone forth with authority and power and we see we see hundreds coming to know Christ. Thousands coming to, oh, we've had the false shows. We've had tons of those, the hoopla, the jumping up and down, oh, hallelujah, mail me a check and we'll do all this other stuff. We've had the false move of God pumped up and trumped up and amped up. Hey, turn up the music a little bit louder, put a little bit more thumping in it. We've had the false moves We are no different than Israel before Pentecost. How many years has it been since the Great Awakening? I was in the 1730s. How many years has it been since the preaching of of Moody and some of the great revivalists that went on in this country? Well, it's been over 150, 160, 70 years. 
How many years since we had somebody stand up and proclaim the Word of God with authority and men and women come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and are saved? We are that dry and parched land. We are that barren place. And the only thing I ever ask is that you would join with me in believing God for another mighty move of the Holy Ghost. Another move before Jesus should come back. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not coming back for the church on a rescue mission. You agree with that? He's not coming to pull the church out because the church is in deep trouble. Jesus isn't listening to the commentators saying, oh, Christianity is failing. Jesus is coming back for an unstained, unblemished, pure, holy bride. And if we are followers of Christ, then we endeavor to be those people and say, Lord, I am a member of the church. Lord, that I would be pure and righteous before you. Lord, that I would rule and reign from you. Lord, that I would be filled with the Holy Ghost. Lord, that I would be part and used of you for the glory and the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a spectator sport. You got to get on the field. Christianity doesn't have any soldiers stationed in the rear, the cooks and all the others. We're all out on the front line. And we either pick up our weapon and follow Christ, or I'll tell you what, throw it down and walk away. We're believing God for a genuine, spontaneous move of God. We're believing God that the Word is going to go forth with authority and with power. Verse 44, he says, I see it. The storm starts coming. The storm that Elijah prayed for will give life to the dry and barren land of Israel. So the storm of the rain that God will bring life to a dry and barren church filled with dry and barren Christians to give life and power to the church that we will all glorify His name and that His church will once again be filled with the glory of Christ. Is that not what we want? That the church would be filled with the glory of Christ. We pray for such rain. While we look to the sea for the clouds, we're starting to see a small cloud the size of a man's hand. But we are confident that behind that, behind that small cloud, will come that heavy shower. We ask you persevere in faith. Not grow weary. Do not grow discouraged, although you might not see anything right now. Keep on looking, as the Lord said. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. Keep on seeking. Keep on believing that if we ask God for bread, that He's not going to give us a stone. Examine our hearts. And what we are asking is in line with the will of God. I say this all the time. Let it rain vanilla are the things we are living for worth Christ dying for. Ask for the right things. Ask that Christ would be honored, that Christ will be exalted, that Christ will be praised. Let go of the selfish things. Ask the Lord how He can use you for His glory. Expect that great things of God attempt great things for God.
Lastly, verse 45. The rain came. And so it came about in a little while that while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, there was a heavy shower. Oh God, we pray that you would send the rain. We pray that you would send a heavy shower. Pour forth your Spirit upon our barren land and upon our church. Baptize us in Christ. Renew us right. Renew a right spirit within us. Restore the fear of God to your people. Cleanse us from our sins. Eliminate formalism and traditional dead religious works. And spur us in faith, vibrant, full of glory and power that you will be exalted in our lives that Christ may exude from every poor, that the glory of Christ would fill His church, that the gospel will advance on the earth until you come, that we would see a harvest of souls come to Christ, that we would tell others of the matchless glory of God and the salvation that is only found in Your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, send the rain. We beg You, I beg You, send the rain, O oh God. Lastly, the Scripture states, then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Oh, that it would be said of you and me that the hand of the Lord was upon us. Oh, that it would be said that the hand of the Lord was upon Calvary. Oh, that it would be said that the hand of the Lord was upon the Gospel proclaiming and Bible-believing Christian churches in this nation and throughout the world. So what do we desire? Will we humble ourselves before the hand of Almighty God? Will we pray in faith for that which we do not see? Will we keep looking with expectancy for the answer? Will we keep going back until we find it? Are we believing God for revival for our souls and for the church? Join with me in pursuit of a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, I pray that each and every heart would be humble before you this day. Father, now is the days of Elijah. We need uncompromising men and women to stand for you, Lord. And Father, Lord God, although you do great works, may you indeed send the rain upon your church, O God, that Christ would be glorified, magnified, exalted and lifted up. Convict our hearts today. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen.